Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, <clears throat> as they say in Star Trek, we're going to boldly go where no man has gone. We're going to enter chapter 13 of the book of Proverbs. And uh, I'm telling you right now, this is also, no matter what chapter you're at in Proverbs, it's just great stuff. And, you know, it's always about and on the continuing theme of a wise man and a foolish man. And over and over again, I think the thing that Proverbs really, just really nails home uh, is we see that the Christian life is such a simple concept. You know, it's just simply two things. You either a man who follows God's principles and he becomes wise, uh, and a fool who forsakes God's principles and he stays a fool. And uh, one who gets filled, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, with substance, he has a depth to him and has, uh, you know, or one that is filled with mischief and uh, causes all kinds of problems in all his life. And Proverbs has been a real in-depth study of man's obsession to complicate the basic simple things of God. It's just that simple. Uh, no matter what God does, he does it in the most simple format. Now, I know there's probably a, some of you, especially you new Christians, probably don't would have a hard time understanding what I'm about to say, and I get it, but I'm going to tell you something. I know the Bible looks complicated, and you look at it, and you think 66 books, and you look at all those words and all those chapters, and I know that it can be intimidating to a young Christian. It can be intimidating to an older Christian, but I want to tell you something. There's no easier book on the planet that ever was written to grasp than the Bible, the problem is you've got to do it God's way. And when you make it complicated, you, because you're doing it man's way. Salvation is the simplest thing on the planet. Simply believe in your heart and believe that God died for you and ask him to come into your heart and save you. What's man do with it? He makes it joining a church. He makes it you know, going through a creed or following this or something you've got to do. Man has an insatiable desire to take the things that are so basic and simple with God and to make them complicated. Most churches, most churches want to keep you in the dark when it comes to really having a relationship with God in the Bible. They really do. They want you to get the idea that God is unapproachable, that he's somebody that all your life you can try and try and try and try, but you'll never really get there. Of course, they've gotten there, but you'll never get there. Pastors have a an infinity for keeping people at a distance where they just basically will never allow them to get to where um, they really understand their relationship with God. So they keep it complicated. And of course, there's nothing complicated about it. Proverbs has been a case study on that obsession of man, to how he complicates and, and makes things so hard for the common person to, to grasp them. And, you know, I've, I've listened to guys that taught the Bible, and they could take the most simplest thing in the Bible, and when they're done explaining it, you, you don't, you're, I'm confused on it because they try to complicate it. They just have to get away from the simple things. And really, learning the Bible is just following a few basic rules. You follow the rules. You stay with the rules. You don't deviate from the rules. The Bible will unfold itself for you. And the Christian life is the same way. It's not complicated. It's not hard. You follow what God gives you to do, as we're going to see today, and it becomes very simple. Now, our verse today in, 
And uh, we're only going to get through one verse today, but it's, it's an incredible verse. And it says, a wise son heareth his father's instructions, but a scorner heareth not rebuke. Now, Father, help us today to learn from this verse and to take from it the things that you have for us. And we love you here. And, Lord, we try to make everything as simple and plain for a common man to understand as we can. We know that there's no merit in, in trying to show off or be smart or try to impress somebody and keep things from them that you intended to be basic and simple. Someone told me years ago that the ministry and soul winning is nothing more than one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. It's just that simple. And help us today as we come to this great verse to learn some things, to grow in some things, and to better understand uh, where we're at with you. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now this first verse in chapter 13 is a verse that uh, has much for us to look at and a, a lot of great applications through great examples in the Bible uh, and their end result, both good and bad. And this is what we call a cause and effect. Uh, what we do, in effect, will cause uh, one result one way or the other. Now, the verse says, A wise son heareth his father's instructions, but a fool heareth not rebuke, or a scorner heareth not rebuke. Now, I want to walk you through today, looking at this simple little verse, I want to walk you through five applications of it. I want to show you five applications of this simple little verse that will help you, and you'll see how this all comes together. Now, it's remarkable to me when, when you can take one little verse like this, and which seemingly is so common and self-explanatory, and then just keep getting things out of it as you break it down. But that's the beauty of the Bible. I'm reminded of a story in the New Testament when Jesus wanted to feed the multitude. And uh, they didn't have any food. They didn't have any money for food. And there was one little guy there that had loaves and fishes. And the Lord said, bring him forward and I'll, I'll take what he's got and I'll, I'll feed this great multitude. Well, obviously, everybody thought that that was an impossible task. Even the disciples didn't think it was going to happen. But he took the loaves and the fishes and when he began to break them into pieces, that's where it began to multiply. And he just kept breaking it down into pieces and it kept multiplying. You know, I've looked at that story many, many times and I've thought to myself, you know what? That's exactly how you learn the Bible. When you begin to break the Bible down in its simplest forms, you know what it does? It does the same thing that those loaves and fishes did. It begins to multiply itself. The breaking of those breads and that fish into pieces and, and breaking it down multiplied enough to feed everybody. And if you want to learn the Bible, you start by breaking it down into those pieces. And when you break the Bible down in those pieces, the Holy Spirit of God then begins to multiply and everybody gets fed. It's just that simple. And in your Bible, where it says a wise man heareth his father's instructions, the first thing I want to look at is in the Bible you will have examples of sons uh, who really listen to the instructions of their father. And are great, they're great examples for us. In 1 Kings chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, you have the instructions of David that he gives to his son Solomon. Solomon in his early years, and I know he gets screwed up later on in life, but I want to tell you, Solomon in his early years is you can learn a lot from his life. 
And in 1 Kings chapter 2, you find one of the greatest passages in all the Bible. You know what it is? It's where David sits his son down and challenges him. He charges him. He instructs him in that great chapter. Solomon reigns for 40 years in a time when Israel, where there's simply no wars. He goes on to become, as we've known today, the wisest man that ever lived. When you look at 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, you begin to see the key to what really brought him to be everything that he was. And it says, and now, this is Solomon speaking to the Lord. After his father gave him these instructions, here's what he says. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father. And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is a mist of thy people which thou hast chosen, a great people, that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked for riches for thyself, or hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any Arise like unto thee. Now that's a great, great passage. That's a great study in itself. Most pastors today, most Christians today, they don't ask for understanding. They want riches. Well, that's why when you go to most churches in an hour service, you got 15 minute devotional and 45 minutes, we need your money. Because that's what they're asking for. They don't have an understanding heart of what you're going through. All they want you there for is to help them accomplish what they want to accomplish. And Solomon, in his early years, he follows the instructions of his father, David. And he becomes a great king, only second to David. And when you look at this passage, there's three great keys of success here that I look at as a success in ministry, the Christian life, certainly in pastoring and building a church. And the first thing you see here is he says, God, I come to you as a child, not as a Ph.D. I come to you just like a little child. And he's such a little child, he's not talking about somebody in their teens or junior high. He's such a little child, he's liking himself too, that he doesn't even know when to come in or go out. He's that dependent on somebody. And Solomon is saying, Lord, I may be king, and I may be a grown man. But I want you to know, I'm just a little child when it comes to your people that you want me to lead. And I don't know whether to, when to go in or when to come out. And I need you. I need you. The second thing you look at here is he says, the people that God gave me, you're a great people. You know, most pastors, they look at their people and they, they don't see the value that they have. They never see them as God sees them. They never see them as the people that God gave that pastor to accomplish the 
task. Now, once God brings them to you as pastor, it's your responsibility to bring them, train them, help them, work through whatever issues they got. Some of them won't. Most of them probably will. But that's your job. But you've got to see them who they are. You don't look at them as problem people. You may have some problem people in time. But you know what? That's never going to be the majority of your people. You look at people that God gives you, and you look at them not in their weaknesses, not in their problems, not in their, their, their issues that they have in life. You look at them in their potential, and you see as Solomon saw the nation of Israel. And there was ever a group of people that had a lot of problems, it was the nation of Israel. Solomon never mentions that at all. He simply says, Lord, they're your people, and Lord, they're a great people. He understands that his job as king, boy, this is a, is this a, is this a, a, a novelty. He understands that his job as a political leader, king, is not to have the people serve him, but for him to serve the people. You know where our country has failed over the last 30, 40, 50 years? We send elected representatives to government. They're, they're there to serve us. But you know what have happened? It's all gotten turned around, and now they're not there to serve us. They want us to serve them. They want you to take Obamacare, but they'll never take it because they got the nicest, sweetest package of health care you ever saw in your life. They're not there to care about what you want or what your needs are. They're there to care about their personal agenda and how they're going to bring it to pass for their people who keep them in office. Solomon wasn't that way. Solomon was a king that he looked at those people and he said, you know what? Those are a great people because they're God's people. And he understood that they, God had something that he wanted to do with them, and he realized that the only way they were ever going to get there was for him to be the right kind of leader. And then the third thing, he asked God for an understanding heart, not a judgmental one. Hey, it's easy to have an, a judgmental spirit. Anybody can do that. It's easy to see people you don't like or see circumstances and be judgmental about it. Anybody can do that. But it's God and only God in the midst of all of the things that you deal with with people. It's only God who can give you an understanding heart. And that's the key. He says he asked for an understanding heart uh, for, to discern both good and, and, and bad. And yes, you will. But, you see, in anything you're going to have good and bad, the key is not, well, I never have good things to deal with or bad things to deal with. In everything in life, you will. The key is to not only understand the good, but to understand the bad and be able to bring it to a solution. A little old farther on in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon was told by David that he was going to build uh, the temple. David wasn't allowed to because David was a warrior. But Solomon builds it in a time of the 40 years of peace because Solomon in type is a type of the millennial reign of Christ when the temple is built. And you're going to find that in 1 Kings chapter 8, the prayer is one of the greatest models of prayer anywhere in the Bible. When Solomon stands up and he begins to pray to God, he begins to talk about all that God has done, and he goes down through five or six petitions. And when he finally ends the prayer, you know what? The Bible's very clear to tell you that when he ends his prayer, he's on his knees. Amen. It's very clear to tell you that when he started the prayer, he was standing, but when he ended the prayer, he was on his knees. Incredible. All about the instructions. 
of a father to a son. In Genesis chapter 22 through 24, you have another example of Isaac taking and following the instructions of his father Abraham. You know, Isaac is probably the most perfect son in the Old Testament. I don't know of one problem listed in his life that's a major deal. And in chapter 22 of Genesis, which is the great sacrificial chapter, we find that Isaac is a type of Christ. And God told Abraham, his father, that I want you to offer your son on an altar as a real sacrifice, real fire, real altar. You're really going to kill him, and you're going to burn him, and you're going to offer him up to me. And you know that Abraham is well past 100 years old. He was 99 when Isaac was born. He's well past 100 years old. And that boy Isaac is is stronger, he's faster, he's smarter. He could have got away from Abraham. There is absolutely, if Isaac had a mind to it, that he never would have laid on that altar and ever come to the place where he would have allowed his father to put him in that kind of scenario. But he did. He never fought him one time. He never questioned him one time. Not one time did he ever balk and fight and say, Daddy, do you know what you're doing? Daddy, you're putting me on the altar. Daddy, you got the knife in your hands and there's the fire. Daddy, am I going to be the son? He trusted his father based on the instructions he had in life with his dad. Incredible. Here's a boy that received the instructions of a father all his life and obeyed him, and now you see it pay off. Even in death, he was willing to face, trust his father and in his instructions. You know what? That's a great picture for you and me in our growth process of getting to the place through God's instructions in the Word of God that you and I can trust him for everything, even in the time of the face of our death. Incredible. Then you have another great example in Jeremiah chapter 35. Probably one of the most unknown places anywhere in the Bible. Here you have a great example of of not just one son, but uh, a a number of sons taking instruction uh, of their father. Completely unknown today. It's the sons of Jonadab. Who knows anything about the boys of Jonadab? They're told by their father in Jeremiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 19, not to do four things. One, they're not to drink any wine. Two, they're not to build any house. Three, they're not to sow any seed. And four, they're not to plant any vineyard. And the Bible says in chapter 35, verse 14, the words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed for unto this day they drink none, but obey their father's commandment, notwithstanding I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye hearken not unto me. What a great illustration you have here. Now he's using that, as he does many times in the Old Testament, as an object lesson. He's taking those boys and telling them those four things not to do, and showing how that they will obey their father, and yet using as an illustration that the nation of Israel will not obey God. Because he says in verse 13, Israel will not receive the instructions to hearken unto my words, saith the Lord. It's a great lesson. Now, to the ordinary Christian, to the uninformed Christian, to the worldly child of God, or some 
menial Christian who goes to church, but the Bible is really not what you spend a lot of time with. Now, I get it. You say, look at that, and you say, well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal about these four things? But from a biblical standpoint, it's a very great, clear illustration. These boys are told not to drink wine, not to build a house, not to sow any seed, have a garden or plant a vineyard. And it's really a picture of the Christian life not getting your roots down too deep in this old world. Now, I want to tell you something. There's nothing wrong with drinking new wine. And there's certainly nothing wrong with building a house. Most everybody here at some time in your life will build a house, have built a house. And you know if you built one, there's a lot of wisdom in that because there's no greater headache on this planet than building a house. But there's certainly nothing wrong with it. Many of you have gardens. I know. I steal your tomatoes while you sleep at night. I know where they're all at. You always bring stuff over. You're so kind. Gary brings stuff, and, and the Amaros bring stuff, and people bring stuff over, you know, and, and uh, you have a garden, and you raise little crops in there. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Plant a vineyard. When I grew up, we had a grape uh, arbor, what they call a grape arbor, in our backyard. Every year, the most juicy, sweetest grapes you ever saw in your life. Some people, some people like to grow those things. Certainly nothing wrong with it. But well, you know in the Christian life, honestly, do you know that what kills most Christians and keeps them from serving God is usually not the sinful things in life. Do you know that? But just the overindulging and getting out of balance with the things that there's really nothing wrong with. We get so out of balance and caught up with the normal things that there's really no sin involved with. I mean, you can build a house. I've seen people build a house that got themselves so upside down in it that they couldn't do anything for God. Uh, They were strapped to that house. Oh, and I know how you always justify it. Oh, when we build this house, we're going to use it and have people over. No, you're not. You're not going to do that at all. Once you got it, you can't afford to have anybody over. And in the Bible, how often do you find it that they, they, they're gluttony where they eat, they drink, and they're merry? And there's nothing wrong with those things except when they get out of bounds. God's people, and this is the illustration. As a Christian, you and I are to be able to go wherever God wants us to go and wherever he calls you to go. You and I all through the Bible are like a pilgrim in a strange land. When God called Abraham out, he didn't tell him where he was going. He dwelled in tents all of his life. He was called to wander for God. You and I, we're pilgrims in a strange world. I'm here. I'm in this world. But I'm not of this world anymore. Yes, I have a house. Yes, I have a car. Yes, I have things that I enjoy, as you do. But let me tell you something. They do never take the precedent over the greatest thing, and that is what God saved you for, to minister for Him. That's the problem. God's people get way too involved with these four things, and they forget God called them. 
to build some things for him, not for yourself. And there's certainly nothing wrong with building things for yourself. Keep it in balance. You got to keep it in balance. Well, the second aspect is you have some bad sons. I mean, you have some good sons and then you have some bad sons. And these bad sons are the other part of 13.1. They won't take instructions. They won't take rebuke either. And the first one you find is in 1 Samuel chapter 1, 2, and 3. And we have the sons of Eli. Totally corrupted the priesthood. And 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, it says, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. That's an Old Testament name for the devil. They knew not the Lord. Well, that doesn't mean that they didn't know who God was. They're in the priesthood. They know all about God. What it's saying is they're not following what God said. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. Now, there's where the devil gets his three-pronged pitchfork, right there. Everything in the Bible, in the world, comes from the Bible. He gets this, you ever see a picture of the devil? He's red, he's got horns, he's got a tail, he's got a cleft foot, and he's got a pitchfork. Somebody said, where did that come from? Well, he's red because he's called the great red dragon, Revelation. He's got a pitchfork right here. He's got a, a horns and a cleft foot and a tail because he's an ox cherub. And over there in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10 and Revelation chapter 4. That's where it comes from. That's beside the point. And he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, all that the flesh hook brought up the priest took for himself. Now, that's a good deal. He puts it in there, and when it floats back up, everything that comes up, he cuts off and takes for himself. It's like the guy knew one time that he, he said, somebody said, do you tithe? Do you give to the Lord? And he says, oh, I try to give it every week. And God goes, won't take it, so I just use it for what I want. And the guy said, what do you mean? He said, every Sunday, every day before I go to church, Every Sunday, I get my paycheck, and I take that 10% off of that, and you know what? I throw it up in the air, and I tell God, you keep what you want, and let the rest fall, and I'll take. Every week, God doesn't take anything. That's what they're doing right here. They're putting it in, and what floats up, the guy says, this is mine. He's throwing it up and says, what goes up must come down. God didn't grab his, so it's all mine. That's the way it works. Also, before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, or he, uh, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. And if the man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth, then he would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Now, they're not only corrupting what they're doing, they're intimidating the guy to give more. Boy, every Baptist church on the planet must know where this passage is. It says, verse 17, Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. You know why some people hate church today? You know why some people won't darken the door of a church? Because of guy just like this. His sons totally forsook the instructions of God that Eli tried to give them. Eli tried to reason with them. They won't listen, but they're a, it's a complete waste of time. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27 through 36, God cuts off the whole family line. Now, the second son is Esau. 
book of Genesis. And he rejects the instructions of his father Isaac all through his life and winds up being Jacob's worst enemy. Winds up being God's worst enemy too. And in time, as his people develop into a great nation, they become Israel's greatest problem, even to this day. You know, I don't know if you know this or not, Esau is the only man in the Bible who has a book written directly against him. It's the book of Obadiah. And, and, and the, they're called the Edomites. And they're called the people of my curse in Isaiah chapter 34, verse 5. Esau becomes the Edomites. Genesis 36, 1. Esau is Edom. And they're Israel's enemy to this day in everything that they do. All because they wouldn't listen to the instructions of God, wouldn't listen to the instructions of the Father. And all because he won't take the rebuke of his Father's instructions. Now, in the future, this is the book of Obadiah, historically, the Edomites went with Shennacherib when he came down to destroy Jerusalem. And in the future, the Edomites, who they are today, are going to align with the Antichrist against the nation of Israel again. That's what the book of Obadiah is about. Then you have Genesis 19. This will be Lot's kids. They totally reject any instruction of the father. Of course, they didn't have much of a father. When Lot finally gets it through his thick skull that God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah over the fact that of lack of hospitality, in Genesis chapter 19, verse 14, he runs to the house of his sons-in-law and his daughters. Honey, I can just see it. He was up there, dark, unlit, you know, comes up to that door, knocks on the door. There's a little window right there with a little hinge on it, opens up, and the marijuana smoke comes out about knocks you over, you know. And he says, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. He comes into that house, and he says, we got to get out of here. God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Come on, guys. we got to go. And the Bible says that when he went in there, finally, with a message of God, he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. Now, these examples in the Bible illustrate the very verse we're looking at today and show you the end result of taking instructions from your father or not taking instructions from your father. Now, here's the second application. The sec- a third application, excuse me. The third application will be to us as parents and our own children. The job of a parent is to instruct their children in the things of the Lord. Bringing the godly influences into their life. Developing your parenting skills around the clear principles of the Bible. And I've showed you many, many times. There's simply, again, it's real simple. There's just five simple stages of raising or training children that you put into their lives that you instruct them through. Psalms 22.6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. This next verse is not in the Bible, but if I have ever wrote the Bible, I would have put it in next. Train up a child in the way he'll go. Don't train up a child in the way he'll go. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 4, 1 says, Hear ye children the instructions of a father. And then as a parent works through the instructions to their child, the Bible says, Proverbs twenty two twelve, You teach them to apply thine heart unto instructions. 
and their ears to the words of knowledge. <clears throat> Training up children is simply three basic things. You teach them, you instruct them, and you apply them. It's just that simple. Now, the fourth thing, <clears throat> the third thing, excuse me. No, the fourth thing will be the application to the people that God <clears throat> will bring into your life. The people that come to your church, the people that you're spiritually responsible for. Spiritually speaking, the sons and daughters in the Lord that you all have or should have. And the greatest example in the Bible is the Apostle Paul. <coughs> Paul is probably the greatest single influence, or I should say he should be, the greatest single influence of everything in the Bible in our lives. Because in the New Testament, we're in a church. Paul was the apostle to the church. And his writings are, you've heard me say it many, many times, his writings are absolutely key and invaluable to understanding what's going on. I've always marveled at the way that the books in the Bible lay themselves out. I believe that the hand of God is in, even in that. <clears throat> Because when you come into the New Testament, you obviously have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. There's your historical books out of the way. And then Paul begins to write, and he writes the book of Romans to churches now. And in the book of Romans, where the church has just come into fruition in, in Acts, now he establishes the church doctrine in Romans. The church is supposed to minister. Not the job of the church. So in 1 Corinthians, the next book, he teaches us how not to minister. And in 2 Corinthians, the third book, he teaches us how to minister. The church should be grounded in their salvation. So the next book is Galatians. You know what the theme of Galatians is? Justification by faith. The church should understand its own identity, who it is. So the next book of Ephesians, he lays out the church body mystery. The church should have a depth to it. The church should have a relationship with God. So the next book, which is Philippians, is the number one most spiritual book in the whole Bible. If you didn't have any other book in the Bible and you only have the ten verses found in Philippians, you get through your Christian life. Philippians is the only church that he writes to doesn't have any issues. It's the closest church that Paul has in a relationship with and it shows in his writings. Tremendous book for us. Bah, but then you got to watch out for what's going on in the day and age that we live in. So he writes the next book, Colossians. And in Colossians, you'll find the word Laodicea five times with all the warnings. In 1 Thessalonians, he talks about the, the five models for the Christian life, chapter by chapter. It's incredible. And then, of course, his last book that he writes to the churches will be Second Thessalonians, and he comes back full circle, and here he talks about the day of the Lord, second coming of Christ. Each one of them will, will be a part of our overall understanding of the New Testament church and its function. You want to figure out the church concept? Get those books the way I gave them to you. But then he doesn't stop there, does he? But then he gives us the example of what we as individuals should be to the men and women <clears throat> that we win to Christ. And the next three books that he writes are three books to three men that he calls his sons, sons in the Lord. 
young men that he won to Christ himself. And now we see the instruction that a spiritual father gives to his spiritual sons in three areas. It's incredible. And we see in 13.1 the instructions of the father. Well, here it is. Here it is in Paul giving the instructions to the young men that he won to Christ. In 1 Timothy, <clears throat> and the relationship between Paul and Timothy is, is, is very clearly laid out in the scriptures. And in 1 Timothy, Paul gives young Timothy 12 instructions. In fact, the whole book, somebody said, could you give me an outline of 1 Timothy? Yeah, the whole book is outlined by 12 instructions that God used Paul to give to the young man that he won to Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 20, he instructs him on the purpose of the law and the true nature of the gospel and then warns him about those who would pervert it. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, he talks about and instructs him in the importance of a good prayer life. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, he instructs him in the importance of women in the ministry, how they're helpful. In 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, he instructs him on the qualifications of a pastor. In 1 Timothy 3, uh, verses 8 through 14, he carries on and instructs him in the qualifications of a deacon. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, he instructs him on how to, how to stand for truth in your life. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, he instructs him on warnings to keep heresy out of the church and out of his life. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, he admonishes him and instructs him about a personal holiness that he needs to have before the Lord. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 through, uh, 5, verses 1 through 16, he instructs him on taking care of the older people in the church, particularly widows. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, he instructs him on the importance of having and developing elders in your church and how vital they are. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, he instructs him on the teaching of relationships that we have. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 21, he instructs him on how to treat all people, rich people and poor people alike. It's incredible. Those are the instructions that he gives his son in the Lord. These 12 areas are so <clears throat> incredible. They're instructions to every young man or young woman who gets saved and wants to minister. Then he writes Timothy a second book. Second Timothy, we know it as. <clears throat> and in this book, the last thing Paul writes before he's killed. And that's very instructive. I've told you before, the last thing in the Bible a man says is always the most important thing of anything he says. And you know what? The last thing you say or where you're at before you die is really the summation of everything you've been in your life. You've either gotten wiser and close to the Lord, or you've gotten more foolish and away from the Lord. But whatever you do, the last state you're in will say a lot about where you're at. True of the Bible. In chapter 1, he talks about his gifts and his, his training. In chapter 2, he instructs him in sound words. He instructs him to stay strong and instructs him to endure. In chapter 3, he instructs him that, you know what, Timothy? There's perilous times out there, and in those perilous times, there are perilous people. Chapter 4, he says, Timothy, I want to instruct you always be ready to preach. In season and out of season. Now, what you have in these two books, and the third one I'm going to give you here, if you haven't figured it already, you have Discipleship 1 in 60 A.D. 
You have exactly what Paul was giving these young guys that he won to Christ. And their instructions to them. Now the next young man, Titus, Paul gives insight. Now Titus is the name of the book, that's his name. And in verse 4 he says, Titus, my own son, after the common faith. Titus was a young man that he won to Christ. And in this book, Paul instructs him on the biblical principles of New Testament stewardship. In verse 7, it says, stewards of God. And he talks about how to be a good steward for God. In the Old Testament, the great example of stewardship, if you don't already know it, will be Abraham and Eleazar. Tremendous study. And from the book of Titus, as you begin there, and then you work it through the rest of the Bible, you know what you find? You find as a New Testament child of God, there's seven things that you and I ought to be stewards of. I grew up, as many of you did, in churches <clears throat> where stewardship was all about money. I remember years ago, this was 35, 40 years ago, we used to have stewardship banquets. They'd have them every year. And you'd come to the stewardship banquet, they'd have a great big old meal plan, and have some motivational speaker, and then a pastor get up, and he'd have a stewardship card. And a stewardship card is you're supposed to fill it out, and you're supposed to tell them that you're going to be a really good steward, and you're going to give this amount of money, you write it down on the card, and uh, they're going to collect them up, and oh, everything you did that year was around that stewardship banquet because no bucks, no Buck Rogers, man, and you had to raise it up. And you were pumped and pumped and pushed that stewardship. Be a steward and give your money to God. And they'd fill those cars out and put them in, and they'd gather them all up, and all oh, the pastor would be slobbered with anticipation. Tally them up. We're going to have a great victory rally here. We're going to have a great celebration when we see how much money we've raised through our stewardship banquet. You know the seven things that you and I are to be stewards of in the Bible? Not one of them has anything to do with money. Now, how did that happen? Not one of them. And you know what the underlying teaching is on it? You get the seven and having nothing to do with money right in your life, you never have to worry about money. So he brings them down there and he kicks off one of the greatest studies throughout the whole Bible. And that's the seven things that you and I as a New Testament Christian are to be stewards over. One of the most incredible studies you'll ever take. Now the third book, the third young man that he writes to, is a young man by the name of Philemon. So the name of the book is Philemon. I mean, you may find that basic, but I've had people that thought Philemon was a place. Didn't know that it was a name of a man he wrote the book to. No, he writes seven to seven churches, and then he writes three books to three New Testament Christians that he won to Christ, showing his responsibility to the people that God gives him. And in this book, Paul instructs him on the fact that as a Christian, you're a bond slave. You don't have any rights. Boy, we live in a Christian world today that demands our rights. We live in a Christian world today that thinks that we're entitled to something. 
You get into the Washington and all that mess over there and the Capitol and all that stuff. I mean, uh, <laughs> these guys have been in office so long that they think that they're entitled to everything. We got a little border collie that we picked up a year ago on Thanksgiving. Sweetest little pup in the world, but this dog thinks that she's entitled to everything. She's not allowed up on the, she's not allowed on this couch, but she's not allowed on this chair. She's on the chair. She's on the bed. She's entitled to our shoes. She's entitled to this. She, she, you got to be careful what you put in the clothes hamper. If people coming, she'll drag it out right in the front room and carry it around. <laughs> that dog thinks she's entitled to everything. Her name is Izzy. I'm going to change her name to Hillary. (laughs) And in this book, Paul's in jail. And you talk about God orchestrating the events. He runs into this guy, Onesimus, who's a runaway slave. And you know, when you're in jail, you don't have a lot to do. They're in the lockup there in the Huskow, you know, and they're talking back and forth. And, and Paul starts to, as Paul does, he starts to inquire about him, you know, where he's from. And he finds out that Onesimus is a slave of Philemon. And Philemon has a church in his home. And Philemon is one of the young men that Paul has won to Christ. So Paul begins to talk about this slave, and in time, he wins this Onesimus guy to Christ. He gets saved. Now he's Paul's son in the Lord. And Paul then begins to write a letter, because Onesimus is going to be sent back to his master, Philemon. So Paul writes him a letter saying, hey, look, Philemon, this is Paul. You're a runaway slave. God put us in the same jail together. I just want him to Christ. And I've instructed him that he should go back to you and be a good slave. I've instructed him that real freedom has nothing to do whether you're slave or you're free. Real freedom has to do with the fact that you're free in Christ. Now Philemon, he had a couple of cards. He had one from a guy by the name of Reverend Al Sharpton. And he had a guy's card named Jesse Jackson. Now, I don't know who those guys are. But they wanted him to revolt. They wanted him to call the NAACP and get everybody on their side. And And I don't know where he got that. I've never heard of those guys. But I just taught him the basic Bible principle that whatever state you're in to be with content for, one is your master, which is Christ. Now that principle became such a powerful thing. A thousand years later, in Germany, in Austria, with a guy by the name of Count Zindendorf, who started a little missionary school to send people out, that he taught the preachings of the Bible, and when the Moravian missionaries were sent out, they got a one-way ticket. They were never to come back. They were to go bury their life in wherever they were going. There were Moravian missionaries who had a burden for the black men who were slaves, 
who, who were free and they sold them, listen to me now, they sold themselves into slavery for the rest of their life. Never to be free again. Never go to the McDonald's. Never go to a movie. Never go do whatever you want to do whenever you do. Now for the rest of your life, you're a bond slave. Why? Because that was the only way they could be a missionary to the black slaves and win them to Christ. They knew the principle of Philemon. Doesn't matter if you're a slave or not. Your master is not the boss that you think he is. If you're saved, your master is the Lord Jesus Christ. Completely foreign today. That Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, when you got saved, you're no longer young. You now are bought with a price. And he says, you go back and be a good slave. For your true master will be Christ. And in this book, we see the principles to you and me being a bond slave. That's why the first man ever saved in the Bible like you and me was a black man. He's a bond slave. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. He's under charge to Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He had charge of all her treasure, but he wasn't a free man. Why the man who helped Christ carry the cross down to Calvary was a black man. A bond slave. You know why? Because when you get saved, you become a bond slave. Preach out at a Ku Klux Klan meeting and see how it goes over. Now, when you got saved, or when you get saved, you need somebody in your life to help you with your new life in Christ. We take that real serious here. We have discipleship one. We have discipleship two. We have whatever you need. If you get saved here or you're just a new Christian or maybe you've been saved and you come to our church, you become at the top of our priority list. Making sure you get somebody in your world that helps you. Now I do that based on my own spiritual father and what he did for me. Bible says in John chapter 1 verses 6 through 9, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The shame came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that life. That was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now God will send you a John. When you get saved, God will send somebody to you to instruct you. Next month, a bunch of you are going to New York. For the 40th anniversary of Mel Shabaka's church. He's my father in the Lord. And whether you know it or not, or whether you appreciate it or not, not only is he my father in the Lord, but he's your grandfather in the Lord. I've read John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 many, many times. And when I read it, I always say this when I reflect back on the man who invested his life in my life. There was a man sent from God whose name was Mel. God will put somebody in your life to help instruct you. Some of you knew him. Some of you never did. 
Nevertheless, he's your spiritual grandfather. And Mel's my spiritual father in the Lord. And the apostle Paul of my life. Now, you know, in a biological sense, you would never be here today if you were not for your grandfather in your family history. He's part of the process that you are here today physically, either through your father or through your mother. And in a spiritual sense, you would not be here and have what you have. Now, listen to me. You would not be here and have what you have if 45 years ago a man hadn't taken me in as a father and instructed me. Now, let me just say this. Don't forget this. The verse. Not only are you here because he instructed me, but you're here because I took his instructions and followed his rebuke. 13.1 says you've got to take the rebuke first before you get the instructions. A wise son heareth his father's instructions, but a scorner heareth not rebuke. You gotta take the rebuke. You gotta change some things in your life before you can get the instructions. Now here's the question. I, I, I preach this whole message today for this one question. But I'll find a couple more before I'm finished. But here's the question out of Proverbs 13.1. Will you, here today, will you that are here, now that you have what somebody did for you, most of you here, somebody invested, think of them right now, they invested in you. They took you in. They helped you through tough times. They answered your Bible questions. They gave you what you needed. They held your hand through all of the different areas you had to go through. And yes, you had to change some things. Yes, they had to talk to you about this or talk to you about that. But now that that has happened in your life, will you be here for the next spiritual generation that you're responsible for or will you not? Will you be that spiritual man or woman, that spiritual father or mother, and the next person who walks through that door? Or will you be too busy? There's always a breakdown. But I thank God that Mel was never too busy for me. And that's why I'm here today. And I want to say this. Those of you who know me, I have never been too busy for you. And that's why many of you are here today. And the man or woman who helped you get through your problems, no matter who it may be, what couple, what single, what guy, what gal, they were never too busy for you. And that's why you're still here today. But you'll be too busy for somebody else. You are a busy person. Really. Now the fifth application will be you and me as a son, a son of God to our Heavenly Father. This will be your personal relationship with the Lord and taking instructions from your Heavenly Father. 
Have you ever noticed in the Bible, if you really want a complete picture of, of you as a Christian, and you really want to understand yourself, and that's really a problem today with most God people. They don't understand who they are. They don't understand themselves. How can they understand somebody else when they don't even have an understanding start about themselves? But you ever see the different ways to study and look at our Christian life as it relates to God and our relationship with Him? A complete component, a complete composite of the Christian life. There's seven ways you do that in the Bible. And each one of them carry with it a specific aspect or dimension to your Christian life, that when you get this one, understand this one, this one, five, four, five, six, seven, and then you take all and you put them all back together, you got a complete picture. You know what the first one is? first one's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 through 4, where the Bible calls you and I as the church a virgin, a chaste virgin. Now, when you lay all that out, and I don't have time to get into all that this morning, but when you lay all that out, you know what you got? You got a picture of the fact that in that passage, he wants you to stay pure. He doesn't want you messing with the world. He doesn't want you messing with the things of the devil. He doesn't want you getting beguiled and getting tricked. And he wants you as a chaste version so that when he presents you to Christ, that you stand on your own because you had a good relationship with him. Now, the second aspect you find is in Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 through 9. And that's where you look at yourself as a bride. You say, well, I'm a man. You're a bride. You're the bride of Christ. Now, when you go through Revelation 21, 2 through 9, other places in the Bible, you'll know that this deals with your relationship with Christ in an intimate way. You see, it doesn't matter if you're a man or you're a woman, and that confuses some people. Well, how am I going to be, how am I going to be, uh, how can I'm a man, how can I be, how can I be a bride to Christ when I'm a man? Well, it, it's, a, it's a picture of you being the weaker vessel in the relationship. You and I are weaker vessels in our relationship with Christ. And the bride of Christ, the church, is likened to a, his bride, God has a whole nation that's his wife, Israel, and Christ has a bride, the church. We're not talking about individuals here. We're talking about in a sense of, of, of an intimacy of a relationship. The third thing you find is in Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. Someday you're going to be a king. You're going to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ, or we hope so. Your millennial inheritance. The fourth thing will be found in John chapter 3, verse 2. First John chapter 3, verse 2. Behold, now are we the sons of God, yet it doth not appear what we shall be. You're a son of God. In that aspect, you're, that's your daily walk with him in receiving instructions as a son from the Father. That's your prayer life. That's your devotion life. That's your walking through life hand in hand as a child with your heavenly Father. The fifth thing will be found in the book of Mark, and that'll be the fact that you need to be a servant. A servant as a bond slave. Servant has no rights. A servant in Mark, Mark, it's that gospel, four gospels that portray Christ in four different ways. Where Matthew, he's the son of man. Mark, he's the, he's the uh, uh, a servant. In uh, Luke, he's the son of man. Uh, in Matthew, he's the king. In Luke, he's the son of man. And in John, he's the son of God. And you see in Matthew that you and I are to be a servant. That's the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We looked at it Thursday night. The sixth thing, the Bible talks about that we're to be a steward. We've already talked about that. 1 
First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 says that as a steward, we're to be faithful. That's all the things that God has given us. And most God people don't even, most God people couldn't be faithful as a steward because they don't even know what God gave them. And the seventh thing is Matthew chapter 18, verses 2 through 3. You're likened to a child. Childlike faith. The devil wants you to be educated. He, and I have nothing wrong with education. But education that gets you outside the Word of God and makes you think you're smarter than God, I have a problem with that, and so does the Lord. Amen. You're to be a child all of your life. Just like Solomon. Don't know nothing. Don't, know something, don't understand anything. So stupid, you don't know something, you don't suspect anything. And everything in your life, you wait upon God's instructions. You go to that book for everything, like a little child going to his father. See, you get those seven things in your life and completely understand them and get them working for you. Each one will carry with it a different aspect to our relationship with Christ. And when the Bible talks about being complete, the completeness of Christianity, it's in these seven areas of getting them down and understanding them. That's the key. Now, as a son... We look to our Father for our guidance. And through His Word, He will instruct us. In a physical sense, the structure is a family, which is run by the Father. In a spiritual sense, the structure is a family, church, brothers and sisters in Christ, run by the Father, the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God that instructs us through the Word of God. When in a physical family, the children won't follow the instructions of the Father, they're going to be issues. Family's going to break down. And in a spiritual way, in God's family, every issue that comes up that breaks down a church or they have problems with will simply be because they won't follow the instructions of the Father to fix it. It's just that simple. Not complicated. Never hard. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, very familiar passage. It simply says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now the Bible says that the instructions in righteousness will only come after you get doctrine. Because you've got to know what's right. The Bible says it Instructions in righteousness will only come after you get reproof because there's some things in your life that you've got to change that the doctrine shows you what's wrong and then you change what's wrong through the reproof. He also says corrections. Correction is now you taking what you see, taking what you've done, taking the reproof, and you correct your course in life and you go this way. When you get those three things down, then the Bible says you get the instructions in righteousness. Now this is why not everybody will do it. Some people don't want to be told what's right. You know, some people don't care what's right. Some people won't take re re reproof. They won't take it. They won't take rebuke. Well, you start to tell them what they don't want to hear, and they're out the door, man. They, they just turn it off. They want to hear nothing about it. And those kind of people never get any correction in their life. They become unteachable. But what's worse, they never get to the instructions that God has for them. And then he says that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, you need to see and understand this because it's the key. There's two areas that 
the instructions of a father perfects you in your Christian life. Now, we're not talking about sinless perfection here. You're never going to be perfect sinlessly until Christ comes back and you get your body. What he's talking about here is being perfected for the work of the ministry, what God's called you to do. And you can be perfected in that. You get better at it every day as you take the instructions. Now, there's two simple words here. The first word is the word truly. In all the new Bibles, the word is changed to thoroughly. Your King James Bible used the word based on the doctrine taught through all the Bible, truly. Because the King James translators knew and understood that what changes you starts on the inside and works out. Philippians 1 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, in you, in you, in you, will perform it on the day of Jesus Christ. It starts in your heart. It comes to the point where it changes the things about you. We see in Christianity today a lot of legalism. And legalism is nothing more than man made rules. Now, I realize that. As Christians, we follow rules, but they're biblical rules. And the idea of legalism, uh, which is pretty much gone by the wayside a lot today, it used to be real big back in the 70s and the 80s, man set up a set of rules. There were people who came to church that didn't have the right haircut, hair was too long, they were asked to leave. There were people who came to church that if they didn't dress the right way, they were asked to leave. And they actually thought that as a human nature, you could command spirituality by legislating morals through human rules. Old story joke is that a woman showed up at church one time and her skirt was up to here. Deacon said, you have to go home, ma'am. You can't stay here like that. Your church is too, your, your, your dress is too short. She says, okay, no problem. So she goes back. She comes out next week. And it was so thin you could see right through it. And they said to her again, ma'am, you, you're going to have to go home again. This church is long enough, but it's just too thin. She goes back the next week, and she had a shirt, another skirt on. Or it was so tight that it was just, and they said, ma'am, you're going to have to go home. She looked at him and said, okay, let me get this right. Uh, now i got to have my skirt long, it's got to be thick, and it's got to be loose. <laughs> you know what? Human nature will always find a way around any human rule you put down on it. Kid, Daddy went to a kid one time, and he said, Daddy, uh, he says, son, he says, why don't you, you're eating a lot of chocolate, why don't you give up chocolate for Lent? And the kid said, well, Daddy, you never give up anything for Lent. And Daddy said, yes, I did. For Lent, I, I could give up drinking liquor. And the kid said, Daddy, that's not true. I saw you drink a beer last night. He said, well, I gave up drinking hard liquor. The kid said, okay, I'll give up eating hard candy and just eat soft candy. See? <laughs> Always the way around it. When it comes to human nature, you cannot legislate human rules. It has to be biblical rules. It has to be from the heart. When I preach to somebody, I don't preach out rules. I preach toward their heart. And I've learned over the years that if you get a man's heart or a woman's heart, whatever they wear or whatever they do will be just right because when they're dressing in the morning, they're dressing to please the Lord, not somebody else. Amen. It starts in your heart. 
Rules don't make you spiritual. It starts inside. And when the Word of God, the word truly is right on the money because it starts in your heart and then the Word of God works through you. The instructions work from the inside out. Truly. Not thoroughly. And then the second word is furnished. In all the new Bibles, it's either finished or it's equipped. And you see there again, the King James translator knew exactly the doctrine that they wanted to project here that's based on all the way through the Bible because they knew that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. And they knew that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament tabernacle was a picture of your body. And they also realized that there, in that Old Testament, there were seven pieces of furniture. There was the brazen altar, there was a laver of water, there was the golden incense, there was the table of the showbread, there was the candlestick, there was the altar of incense, and there was the Holy of Holies. And they knew that each one of them pictured something inside your very soul, because that's what the picture is. They knew that the brazen altar, which is laid out in Ezekiel chapter 27, was a picture of God's judgment on His Son. Brass in the Bible is a picture of judgment. That's where the sacrifice was burned. They knew that the laver of water, which is laid out in Ezekiel chapter 30, was right outside the door. And they knew that that priest went in and came out to do the ministry. That, that, that tabernacle had no floor in it. It was just dirt and sand. So every time he went in and came back out and did what he did it before he would go back in, he'd have to wash his feet. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of you ministering in the Word and getting your feet dirty. So you wash the water of the Word get clean before you go back in and minister again. They knew that. There was a golden censer, Leviticus chapter 16, where they put the, the, the incense that burned and gave off a smell. It's a picture of your own personal prayer life. Yet you pray without ceasing wherever you go. There was the table of the showbread that was over here, and it was a table set up, and it had bread that was fresh baked every morning, and it had one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. And the priest ate it every morning after they did their routine and did what they did. There was six, six, twelve for the nation of Israel. But it's a type of the Word of God, so there's six and six, because your Bible in its final form has 66 books in it. Then on the other side, across from it, was the golden candlestick that had seven candles on it. Picture the seven spirits of God in Isaiah chapter 11. And there was no light in that tabernacle, it was, everything was completely covered with animal skin, and it was pitch black. And uh, you know what? The, the candlestick is over here, and the showbread's over here, and the job of the priest, everything he did, he had to do by the light of that candlestick. You know what that's a picture of? Everything you do in your life, you have to do by the light of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. And that bread over here, you see, if he got here, he couldn't see what he was doing because he got in front of the Holy Spirit of God, the candlestick. So he had to come around and work from the back and let the light shine on him. And that's what happens with you and me. When we start to do the Word of God, when you get in front of the Holy Spirit of God and the light can't shine on the Word of God, you don't get anything. When you get behind it and let the work, the Holy Spirit of God do its work, then you get something. And I'll tell you something else. They're out there in that world, shine out there, you know, doing their work and everything. And they walked into that total police back black darkness, only lighted by seven candles. They couldn't see. Ever walk out of thing, go into a movie theater in pitch black daylight or daylight, and then go in pitch black with the movie before the movie starts? You got to stand just still for a few minutes. You're going to break your neck on something. 
Your eyes got to adjust to it. When that priest left from the bright sunlight of the world into that tabernacle, he had to stop for a minute and let his eyes adjust to just the light off the candlestick. And you know what? When you first get saved, you know what discipleship is? You know what discipleship one is? You know what people working with you in your life is? It's them helping you get your eyes adjusted to the new light that you see from looking at it through the world's light, now looking at it through the Holy Spirit's light. It's furnishings. It's furnishings. You have the altar of incense, another picture of prayer. And then you have the Holy of Holies. That represents your very soul, sealed under the day of redemption, all that God has for you. So you begin to see that when you, when you look at these instructions of a father, and you see all the different five applications to it, how it all starts on the inside the day you get saved and then works out from there. Now, this is the, the admonishment of Proverbs 13.1, a wise son heareth his father's instructions, but a scorner heareth not rebuke. One of the greatest studies in all the Bible is these five aspects of your relationship with your heavenly father based on your being willing to take the instructions that he has for them and then apply them into your life. A few minutes ago, I told you as a parent the three areas of your child that you want to focus on. But they're the exact three areas for you and me as a child of God with our Heavenly Father we want to focus on. You want God to teach you. You want God to instruct you. And then you want God to show you how to apply what He's given you. Those are the keys. All of that. That little verse, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 1. You know why? Because when you break it down, it just keeps multiplying itself. Every head bowed and every eye closed.